And uh, you see the title there basically covering uh, the two topics from the chapter. The first one being servants uh, and the second one being injury, personal injury. Uh, and so we'll see what God uh, says. Uh, you know, I want to say we'll see what God thinks uh, or what God believes, uh, but we're not interested in what, uh, what, just what God believes. This is what God says. This is what is. Uh, this is the truth, and uh, it's not an opinion. Uh, it's not a side to be taken. Uh, it is uh, the truth. It is God's Word, and so it helps us stand and know uh, where we should stand. So we'll read the first 11 chapters, uh, excuse me, the first 11 verses uh, of chapter 21, and then we'll get into the sermon. It says, Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. Now this is God speaking to Moses. Uh, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife, and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free... Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. And if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her. And if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. And if he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity of your word. Uh, Lord, we do not run from your word tonight, God, but we run to it. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to make... Um, correct interpretation uh, tonight, God. I pray that our observation of your word, Lord, as we view it and understand it and apply it, uh, Lord, to culture and to, uh, Lord, situation, uh, God, the circumstances, and put it in context, Lord, that you would help us make a clear and correct um, uh, um, interpretation of it. Uh, God, and then I pray that you would help us make application tonight. Uh, Lord, in a way that only you can. Uh, Lord, help us to see you as you are, the giver of law, uh, the ruler of men. Uh, God, ultimately right. Lord, you are the authority. And so, Lord, I pray that we would come, uh, Lord, submissive to your word tonight. Lord, not judging your word, but allowing your word to judge us. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Uh, just reading those first 11 verses, um, you probably have more question marks than answers. Anybody in that spot? Well, I got a lot of questions about what we just read here. Uh, what is going on? Uh, we've got slavery. We've got women being sold. We've got them being sold back. We've got uh, taking another wife. What, what in the world is going on here? Uh, well, it's good for us, before we jump into the interpretation, it's good for us to remember and consider, thus saith the Lord. Uh, this is my first point tonight. Uh, it's... Uh, it's one thing for a Christian to be in a place where he says, I've read the word of God, I've judged it, uh, I deem it acceptable and reasonable, and I stand by it. 
It's a totally different place to be to say, I have met God through His Word. It has judged me, and He has offered me a place as I am in submission to it. We don't come tonight to judge God's Word. We don't come tonight to judge God according to our set of morals and our set of standards. Uh, So let's make sure we keep that in mind. We come before God and His Word confessing that He is right. But we also come to His Word under the knowledge that He has given us that He does not contradict Himself. Uh, that he does not, uh, he, he never lies, he never changes his story, he doesn't have one set of rules and then another, another set of rules. And so there are some things tonight that we need to make clear and make plain so that we do not misunderstand God. If nothing else, I hope that we can go away tonight from this chapter able to defend this chapter. Uh, because it is so often misused and so often misspoken and so often pointed to uh, as, as God condoning slavery and God condoning uh, beating slaves and as God condoning uh, multiple uh, wives and, and, and things like that. Uh, and it's just not the case. Uh, so we want to make sure that we come submissive to God's Word and we want to make sure uh, the two directions for a Christian to go, we can either run away from it, right? we can either run from it and try just to push it to the side and stick to the things that make us feel good about ourselves, Or we can run into it and learn it and search it and not twist it. And that's what I'm hoping we can do tonight. I'm hoping we can run into the Word of God, we can learn from it, we can understand it as God intended it, and we can come away with a good understanding of what God uh, spoke to His people, what He intended for them and intends for us, without ever twisting up the Word of God. So that's our goal for tonight. I want to put you in context of the purpose of, of these laws. God is making a new nation of people, okay? Uh, A theocracy in need of judgments and standards. He's pulled the children of Israel. We think of them as the nation of Israel, but they really did not think of themselves in that way up to this point. Uh, They were slaves in Egypt. God has brought them out. God is setting up a theocracy, and God is writing down uh, their law. So that's what we're going to be spending the next several weeks in, is the civil law of God as God sets them up as a nation. Uh, These people have been in bondage their whole lives and only know the pagan, immoral practices of Egypt. They've been raised in Egypt. That's all they know. Uh, That's all they've seen when it comes to uh, the way government ought to work, when it comes to the way servanthood ought to be handled. Uh, Of of course we know there was slavery in Egypt. They were the slaves in Egypt, right? Uh, And not the kind of servanthood that we are going to talk about tonight, uh, but true slavery Uh, more as we think of it. All of these uh, that we're covering tonight uh, and on into the next chapter, all of these speak to how they were to treat others and is incredibly applicable for us to know how to treat others in order to please God. Isn't it good that God spoke to them and says, this is how you conduct yourself with one another in order to please me. And some of these things, you may not be shocked necessarily at how God judges and how God rules, but you may be a little bit interested, or it may be new to you to find, oh, well, that's in God's Word. That's not just what man thought of, or that's not just, you know, that just makes good sense. If it just makes good sense, it's probably because it's been taught to you, uh, because uh, our laws and our nation is built largely on uh, these laws of God. So, coming into these first 11 verses, he's talking about caring for servants how to care for your servants, how to interact with 
your servants. Immediately we need to understand the culture of the day and not impose our assumptions upon that culture. Uh, This servanthood, this slavery, if you will, has nothing to do with race and nothing to do with oppression. Okay, Uh, They are Hebrews that are buying other Hebrews. Uh, There's nothing to do with race. It has nothing to do with oppression. And in fact, that is exactly what God is talking about here. God is laying out rules and standards and regulations so that it does not move into oppression. Let me read Leviticus chapter 25 for you uh, quickly. Leviticus 25 and verse 39. God says, And if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. Okay? So we, we need context here. We need to understand what we're talking about. God says, if a brother becomes poor and sells himself to you, do not compel him to serve as a slave. So what we're talking about in these verses here is not really slavery as we think about slavery, but is servanthood. Okay, It was common practice. Uh, if someone was in poverty, that they would sell themselves in servanthood. Uh, if you punch a clock in so many ways, you are selling yourself in servanthood. Uh, you are selling yourself in time, giving your time. You've contracted yourself out. Uh, and the way that they did it was, was very differently different from the hourly way that we do it today. Uh, but it was a way to provide for uh, uh, those that were poor. Now you see there on the next point, slavery was more of a servanthood in order to pay a debt, provide for a family, or serve community service. If you go to Exodus chapter 22, verse 3, you'll see if a thief was found breaking in, and is struck, oh, excuse me, verse 3, if the sun has risen on him, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. He should make full restitution, speaking of the thief. Uh, if he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. So if you stole something and got caught stealing, then you would be sold in order to pay for the thing that you sold or in order to pay back, because they had to pay back double uh, what they stole. In order to pay that back, you would be legally sold because of your theft in order to pay your debts if you had no other way of paying your debts. So you see there the reasons. Uh, This was, for the most part, other than the situation we just talked about, a servanthood of choice. Okay, So we're talking about a servanthood of choice. You're talking about individuals who find themselves in a place where either because of poverty they decide to sell themselves into servanthood for a certain amount of time or uh, as a way to provide for themselves and to provide for their family. Uh, They will move into a position of servanthood so that they will be cared for and provided for. Uh, And look also, Deuteronomy 15, verse 12 through 18. This gives us a good picture. Deuteronomy kind of breaks down in more detail what we're talking about here in Exodus. It says, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you, look, here's all the similarities from chapter 21, and serves you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let him go free. And when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. 
So he's to serve, he's to serve his six years, he's to be let go in the seventh year, and when he goes away, he doesn't go away empty-handed. Do you see how we're not talking about slavery like may have come to your mind when we first read through these verses? You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your winepress, from what the Lord has blessed you with, and you shall give it to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore I command you this thing today. And if it happens that he says to you, I will not go away from you because he loves you and your house, since he prospers with you. Right? This is the type of relationship that God was looking for. If you take such good care of those that serve you, that they, when their time is up, that they can walk away from that contract, they say, no, I want to stay with you because you take such good care of me. Right? That was the goal. That was what they were looking for. Then, verse 17, you shall take an awl and thrust it through his ear to the door, and he shall be your servant forever. Also to your female servant, you shall do likewise. So they would take, they would go before the judges as we read. He would make his declaration that he wanted to continue to be this man's servant. Do you see the choice and the judging that is going on here? This is a business transaction. There's no forcing, there's no oppression, nothing like what we might would think when we first read these verses. And they would take him, if this is what he chose to do, and in, in the sight of everybody, as a testimony, they would uh, bore a hole through his ear to the doorpost. You've seen, I tend to picture, the gauges that you see people walking around with. I think that's probably about what it looked like, uh, showing their servanthood. Verse 18, And it shall not seem hard to you when you send him away free of you, for he has been worth a double hired servant in serving you six years, then the Lord, will God, Lord God will bless you in all that you do. So if he chooses to go away in that seventh year, you shouldn't be upset with him. You shouldn't say, oh, did I not take good enough care of you? Oh, did I not, was I not kind to you? Uh, and have some kind of animosity toward him. He says, no, be glad for him. Be thankful for him. And know that you took well enough care of him that he's able now to go out and make it on his own. And before the Lord, know that God will bless you for doing that. So a totally different picture, right, when you really looked into the Word of God than what you may uh, have first thought when reading uh, through these verses. To get into some of the details here, verse 2, uh, you'll see, He shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go out free and pay nothing. We're not getting into, we don't have time tonight get, to get into the year of Jubilee. Uh, but that was something that God put before His people that every seventh year they would have a year of Jubilee. The land would be rested. All people would be freed, those that had sold themselves. So it wasn't as though you, every contract was a six-year contract. Okay, If you're three years from the year of Jubilee, then it's only a three-year contract. If you're one year from the year of Jubilee, it's only a one-year contract. Okay, So... Depending upon what year it is, you may have a different pay for your servanthood uh, and, and things like that. I was thinking about this in preparation for this sermon. I wonder if thievery went up in the last year before Jubilee, right? If you could only be kept for a year uh, for what you stole, or if you could only be kept you know, to the year of Jubilee, maybe in the last year, or maybe I know it's the last year before Jubilee, we all know theft is really going to skyrocket this year. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know if it's that way or not. I hope it wasn't that way. I know it's not the way God intended it to be. But there was a, a seventh year 
The tenure was to ensure that none of God's children need to be enslaved except under a servanthood of choice. Looking down, if he comes in, verse 3, if he comes in married, the married servant could work alongside his wife, and after their time, they were both free to go. That makes sense. If he comes in and he's married, then when it's time for him to go, he can take his wife with him. God is making sure and plain of that because a female servant was not let go in the seventh year. But if she was married and was come in with him, then she would be let go with him. And we'll come to that in just a little bit. Verse 4 through 6 seems strange, right? If he's given a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and children shall be the masters, but he shall go out by himself. Well, that sounds very weird, doesn't it? And I, if, you, if you apply this incorrectly and don't have in view what we've been talking about here, you might think, oh, well, the, the slave owner would provide a wife for the slave in order to entrap him uh, into you know, ha- having kids with her, and then he's going to stay for her and stay for the kids. That's not what was going on here. You think about that servanthood relationship, the gift of a wife, right, for a, a master to bring for the servant, hey, I can provide you a wife. Do you want to take a wife? That's a gift of a lifetime. That's an incredible gift. That's a gift that anyone in servanthood wouldn't be able to pay on his own. Uh, Maybe a young man would sell himself into servanthood in an attempt to earn and gain so that after six years in that seventh year, he might have saved up enough so that he could go get a wife, right? So now instead of waiting six years, he has a a master who says to him, look, I will provide a wife for you. So when you look at it in the right context, you begin to understand the gift of a wife was just that, a gift and not a trap. Okay, there's the gift of a wife is not a trap, men. uh, Don't think that to be the case. Uh, I was joking with the teenagers. I was joking with the teenagers on Sunday night. I was like, "The, the day you get married is the day you die. And they're like, what? I said, yeah, because two flesh become one. You're no longer you yourself all by yourself. Single you is dead. You become married you. You're, you're born something new, something better, something more complete with a wife. Oh, oh, okay, okay, yeah. It is a lifelong gift was worthy. Think about it this way. A lifelong gift was worthy of lifelong servitude, Okay. And that was to be understood going into uh, the arrangement, the agreement. Uh, the choice of the servant to remain with the master is actually a beautiful picture of our salvation. We are not our own, for we have been bought with a price. We owed a debt we could not pay, and yet received the offer of an eternal gift, providing us the choice to serve the Lord forever. For sake of time, I won't get into these, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul calls himself a servant, enslaved to Jesus Christ and the ministry and the work of Jesus Christ. But yet in chapter 9, verse 16 through 19, he says, This I do willingly. Well, which is it? Are you a slave? And in our minds, there's one or the other. You either are a slave or you have will and rights and choice. And that's not the context. That's not the type of servanthood or slavery that we're talking about here Uh, that God is putting forward. So as you understand that better, you can understand better what Paul is talking about where he says, I'm a slave by choice. I've given up my rights by choice to the master, to the Lord, who is a good uh, master to me, who has given me a lifelong 
gift. Namely, in the bride, or becoming the bride of Christ. In dealing with the female servants, again, it sounds strange, uh, but look at verse uh, 7. If a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. In dealing with the female servants, remember that arranged marriages was the custom and was how parents would provide for their daughters. Okay, Arranged marriages were the custom in most of the world and are still the custom in much of the world. So this sounds very strange to our Western ears. This sounds terrible. Uh, you know, all the little Disney movies that portray arranged marriages, you know, they all portray them so terribly, uh, you know, trying to, uh, you know, to use and abuse, uh, you know, the girl of the story or whatever. And while, of course, a lot of that has gone on, uh, that is not what God intended, and that is not the norm for these arranged marriages. You who have daughters, don't, don't just suddenly begin to think, well, a long time ago, they just hated all their daughters, and they just sold them off to all these terrible men, uh, you know, for greedy financial gain, <laughs> because everybody was terrible back in the day. Well, that's not what arranged marriages were. Uh, some of you as fathers uh, of daughters, and even me as a father of sons, I'd love to know that I could prearrange a marriage. Wouldn't that be nice? Keep them away from some of the folks that are going to lead them in the wrong direction and pick somebody out for them with a little more wisdom than what those knucklehead teenagers uh, are tempted to go after, right? We all kind of feel that way a little bit. Uh, so in that light, the prearranged marriage, and that's what we're talking about here. If a young lady were to be uh, sold, it would be to be given in marriage. That's why she doesn't go out in verse, uh, in verse 7. She shall not go out as the male slaves do. It wasn't as though uh, he would take uh, her to wife for the rest of the six years, uh, and then she would go back. Arranged marriages came with a bride price. You know, we've all... We've all heard that we all understand that i believe uh to go and get a daughter or get a a young lady for your son to marry or go and purchase a bride for yourself uh it was to show that that lady that young lady was a treasure we think it's so strange to oh that's terrible to buy a wife and they look at us and go you give away your daughters for nothing what are they worth to you they're worth nothing to you that's terrible the man just shows up and says he'll take her off your hands, and you say, great, okay. What, what is her, does she hold no value? Does she have no, is she not treasured to you at all? Right? Do you see the, the different sides, the different uh, perspectives here? So four options basically are given in these two verses. Uh, reading through here, verse 8, again, can sound very strange to our ears, but it says, if she does not please the master who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her. So the first way that a female would be sold into servanthood or be sold to another was for marriage of the individual doing the purchasing, right? Uh, he would bring his bride price and the, the poor parents or the poor daughter or the indebted parents, or whatever, however it tended to, to play, he would say, I'm coming to, to pay the bride price so that she can become my bride. And after a certain period of time, maybe she was too young to be a bride already, just yet, or maybe after a certain passage of time, if she did not please him, that simply means if she was not fit for him, or he was not fit for her, Okay? If, he, if she didn't want to be in his house, if she was unwilling to, to 
you know, to take care of the house and do things like that. If they didn't, you know, for whatever reason, uh, he, didn't know, he no longer wanted to marry her, not having taken her as wife, not having defiled her, then he could take and he could go back to the father and he, the father could redeem her back, could buy her back. Do you understand where I'm, what I'm saying here? Okay, And this was looked at as a black mark on the one who is returning her, basically. He has dealt deceitfully. He said he was going to marry your daughter. Now he's chosen not to marry your daughter, and he is bringing her back. It wasn't a black mark on the daughter. It was a black mark on the man because he has dealt deceitfully with her. But in the end, the father would get the daughter back for less than what he had given him to the man for, right? And so now she's returned home, the marriage annulled and not consummated and doesn't work out. She goes back home to mom and dad. The second way is if he betrothed for his son. If he goes and gets her for his son, what does it say? He shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. How was he to deal with this young lady? Just like he would his own daughter, right? That is the law of God. That is how God says he ought to deal with her as his own daughter. The third option is if he takes her to be his wife or takes her to be his son's wife, but instead takes another wife, right? How many of you read verse 10 and thought, okay, well, God has given, given way to him. Well, he can have her as wife and then he can take another wife. That's not what God is saying. He's saying if instead he takes another wife, he must continue to provide for this female servant by food, by clothing, and your translation probably has marriage rights. That's simply, the, the word there most strictly means dwelling. He must continue and not pull back on any giving of her food, clothing, and shelter. Now the question is marriage rights. Can he marry her to another uh, can like exactly what does this mean? I don't believe that to be the case because he's not allowed to sell her to a foreign people or to a different people. He must continue to provide for her. And if so be it, the father, of course, still can redeem her. So again, we have to really work through. We're not twisting the word of God, but we're understanding it. At first light, we're going, oh, that's ugly. Run away. But when we really begin to understand what God is saying and God's in purposes and intentions, we see that God is making these laws and rules in order to guard young men and young women, poor men and poor women, from being oppressed, brought into slavery, misused and mistreated by those that would have more authority and more money and more power. Do you see what God is doing here? He's making a standard, making regulations. Coming into verse 12, uh, we see compensation for personal injuries. Compensation for personal injuries. And I'm going to move through these very quickly. Uh, I felt like a lawyer, right? And I'm not a lawyer by any means. But I felt like, okay, he's making compensation for personal injuries. And these are the things that can get you capital punishment. And these are the things that don't get you capital punishment. You know, and I'm clicking it out and writing it. And here we go. Um, these are God's rules for capital punishment. Genesis 9-6 is the very first place Noah's getting off the boat. If you want to do your own research, Noah is getting off the boat, and God commands Noah the very first time in the most um, um, 
in the very most basic way, if a man takes another man's life, then by man that man's life shall be taken. And sets up the very first rule of government in that it is the job of those in authority to protect those over which it rules. And if one man takes another man's life, then God's word says that that man's life ought to be taken for that man's life. So God is absolutely a believer in capital punishment. If you go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, you get Jesus' teaching where he says, You've heard an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, if one smacks you on the cheek, to turn the other cheek. That is for you as a personal, as an individual. It is not for you to go vigilante. It is not for you to try to earn, uh, you know, get what's right and get what's yours and strike vengeance. But it is for the governing authority to go and exact vengeance for you. You shouldn't have to do it because your government ought to do it for you. You shouldn't have to do it because the policeman and the judicial system ought to do it for you. So Jesus' words in no way are going against God's law, and they're not going against uh, us as a society taking out corporal punishment or capital punishment. Uh, They are for us as individuals. It's not for us to seek our own form and terms of justice. Uh, Premeditated murders. You read down through here. He talks about premeditated murder. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint a place for you where he may flee. So what we don't have time to get into tonight, and we will get into later, uh, is dealing with, um, somebody help me with the, yes, the cities of refuge. I couldn't think of the word. Uh, was with the cities of refuge. And when they get into Israel, God has them set up different cities of refuge. Whereas if me and Alan are out in the field chopping down a tree and the axe flies off my head, uh, flies off my handle and goes to Alan's head, I have a chance to get to a city of refuge before Karen comes and gets me, right? Because she's coming. Right, So I go to the city of refuge, and I go before the judge, and I tell him what has happened, and he tries it out. Right, That's not what God's talking about here. This is talking about premeditated. In verse 13, he's talking about uh, those uh, accidental. Uh, Numbers 35 gives more detail about these accidental deaths and what is to happen there. But premeditated murder, capital punishment. Striking or cursing your parents, he shall be put to death kidnapping he shall be put to death it's it's plain here in verse 16 it doesn't matter where you whether you find the person he kidnaps or whether he sells him and you never find him he is to be put to death kidnapping uh, capital punishment killing a pregnant woman and or her unborn baby uh, you see there uh, in uh, verse 20 um, no not verse 20 where am I Yep, 22. Uh, If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, uh, if no harm follows, he shall be punished accordingly as the woman husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. Uh, But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So there in God's law, God is uh, upholding the life of the unborn child there in the very first parts of God's law. So that's uh, 
capital punishment. Over in chapter 22, verse 18, uh, demonism or sorcery. Chapter 22, verse 19, uh, bestiality. Uh, these are capital offenses. Put these to death. Continuing on uh, in these verses, you'll see injury to a servant. <clears throat> and this is, this is interesting. Uh, verse 20, if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies in his hand, he shall surely be punished. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his property. Is God condoning beating a servant to within an inch of his life, and as long as he makes it, well then it's okay? Is that what God is saying here? Of course not. Okay, uh, Corporal punishment, different from capital punishment. Punishment. I practice corporal punishment on my children. I believe that we as a society need to get back to corporal punishment. Uh, capital punishment, I don't practice that on my children, uh, and neither should you. Uh, but corporal punishment uh, is, uh, it may seem barbaric to us, but has through human history been normal means of dealing with disobedience, laziness, and rebellion. Right? So in dealing with a servant, who is being disobedient or rebellious or just plain lazy, corporal punishment, yes, was allowable. Uh, and it is allowable and even encouraged for parents with their children that they would practice corporal punishment. Uh, again, not to a degree of injury. And you see that uh, down in verse 26. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant... <clears throat> and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. So in application, any kind of permanent damage, any kind of, of injury done to an individual, he had the right to go before the judges, right? Erase what you think about you know, recent-day slavery out of your mind. He had the right to go before the judges to show his wounds, to show that he has been mistreated, and through that earn his freedom, absolute and outright. Okay, So, in no way is God uh, condoning uh, the, the abuse of any individual. Uh, death of uh, a, a female or male servant uh, most likely would bring... Uh, the death penalty as well. The point being, again, God's law took care of servants in ways that no other civil law did. Right? No other, no other place in that time, if you had a slave or a servant, uh, he was considered property. If you abused your property, well, that's you abusing your property. Not so in God's law. That is not God's way of men dealing with men. You also see here, if two men fight... Uh, one another, and one injures the other, he is to compensate the other for time lost. <clears throat> um, if, 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 he, uh, is, if he kills a man, now we've moved into the corporal or the capital punishment issue. If he doesn't kill him and injures him terribly so that he cannot work, he has to compensate him for his time lost. This is not a matter of self-defense, which God deals with in Exodus 22, verse 2, and in other places. In matters of self-defense, if you kill a man in self-defense, there would be no judgment brought against you. Moving on. Uh, it's in, uh, in Moving into verse 28. If an ox gores a man. I'm, I'll be honest with you, I was reading over this going, i got to preach this tonight. You know what I mean? Like, 
But I mean, I hope it's interesting to you. I hope that you're gaining understanding like, okay, God's, God's setting out civil law here. God is setting up his country so that when things happen, they know what to do, right? That's what God's law gives us so that when things happen, we know what to do in order to please God. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. So if, if your ox gored somebody and, or trampled somebody and killed them, they were to kill the ox and not eat him. Basically, you as the owner don't get to get the reward of that ox. Uh, that ox is gone and dead, and the, the ox is put to death. However, verse 29, if the ox tended to thrust with its horn in times past, and it has been made known to its owner, and he has not kept it confined so that it has killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. So if you, because of your negligence in what you know and already have been told, cause someone else to die, you are to be held accountable for that death. This is God's law. <clears throat> Now, apparently, verse 30, <clears throat> depending on the nature of the owner's neglect, right, he may be given the opportunity to redeem his life. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm imagining scenarios here. Uh, but if the ox is generally fenced in or tied up and somehow breaks free or breaks loose, if there's no neglect here, uh, you know, you, you can imagine uh, if... Uh, you know, a friend of yours, if your next door neighbor's ox got loose and he had done everything that he was supposed to do and could do to keep it up and that ox had come and trampled and killed one of your family members, I would hope that you would not want death for that man, right? Because he, it was accidental. He had done everything in his power. There was no neglect there uh, with, with your neighbor. Uh, and so there could be imposed on him a sum of money. Then he shall pay to redeem his life whatever is imposed on him, whether it is gored a son or gored a daughter. According to this judgment, it shall be done to him. If an ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. Some people take this last verse and go, oh, well, if he gores a servant, well, that's not the same as taking a life, so he just pays his 30 shekels and he's done with it. No, we're still under the same... Uh, just as if he had gored your son or daughter, right? There should be an, an imposed uh, uh, a sum there. If he gores a male or female servant, he shall pay 30 shekels of silver. Notice that the price <clears throat> given for the life of the servant is equal to what Judas was paid for betraying Christ. And that's interesting to note. Jesus became uh, a servant. Uh, Jesus became a, a slave, if you will. Uh, and was put to death, uh, and paid, uh, Judas there paid that, uh, that servant's price. <clears throat> Lastly here, uh, you see laws about restitution. If a man opens a pit or digs a pit and doesn't cover it, and an ox or donkey falls in it, the owner of the pit shall make it good. He shall give money to their owner, but the dead animal shall be his. So, okay, if I kill a man... Or if a man dies because of my neglect, my life is to be taken. What if, another, what if an animal dies from my neglect? God is very quick and very clear that the life of an animal does not equal the life of a man. 
right? These two things are not equal to one another. If a man ox hurts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and divide the money from it. And the dead ox they shall also divide, right? So if my ox kills your ox, then we sell my ox and split the money and we split your ox's meat and eat the meat, okay? That's how that works. That's what, that was God's law. That was God's rule. It's not as though uh, me as looking at you with your dead ox goes, sorry, man, and lets you just have a dead ox and I keep plowing with mine. We're not going to do that. Or if it was known that the ox tended to thrust in times past, the owner's not kept it confined, he shall surely pay ox for ox and the dead animal shall be his own. So if my ox kills your ox and we, it has a history of aggression, I'm not going to lose my life again. My life is not equal to the life of an ox. But we're going to trade, and you're going to take apparently the bigger ox. Uh, and I'm going to take uh, the dead ox. So we see again, uh, the life of man is not equal to the life of an animal. What can we learn? I hope we can learn this as we go through here. God determines order and right in the world. The best case scenario is that none of these offenses should take place. Right? Isn't that the best case scenario? The best case scenario, and God even says it in His law in different places, I would that there would be no, no poor among you. Right? My goal is that, my, my, my desire for Israel is that there would be no poor in Israel, but then He comes back and says, but there will always be poor with you. Right? God's desire is that no one would have to sell himself into servanthood. But he does make a way for those that are in poverty, in debt, that they can go and work and labor and serve and earn and get back on top by working under a good master. God desires that no one, should, no one would die. No one would kill anybody else. No one would strike or rebel or curse their parents. Uh, God, of course, doesn't want for any of these things to happen. But yet, we live in a world that is wrecked by sin and sinful men. All this is to be carried out decently and orderly. Note the phrases pointing towards the due process. And we didn't get into this much tonight. But verse 1, verse 6, verse 13, verse 14, verse, verse uh, 30, all point towards the altar or the judge. Right? Uh, whereas this was a theocracy, they were to bring this before the judges. That's what... Uh, uh, Moses did. Remember going through Exodus, Moses sat and he judged before the people all day long because while they were out in the wilderness, it's not as though nobody ever died, nobody ever stole anything, and nobody's ox ever got loose and gored anybody else's. And Moses sat over them and he made right between the people all day long. Uh, so there is order, there is uh, rule and authority. It is good, lastly and right, that a nation would judge and avenge its people. It is good and it is right that a nation would judge and avenge its people. Uh, there are folks, believers and unbelievers alike, who don't believe uh, that in capital punishment, who, who want to try to, uh, you know, as a, it, it's, it's one thing for us as believers, as individuals, to offer grace and mercy and forgiveness and turn the other cheek. That's what Jesus Christ did. But in no way does Jesus Christ allowing it to happen, right? He could have called 10,000 angels. In no way does that excuse the governing authority over him that did not act lawfully, that did not act rightly, that broke their own law and their own commandments in order to put him on the cross. It's the same thing for us. We don't seek our own justice. 
And we ought to understand and know that it is right and that it is good that a country would seek justice for its people. It is ours to turn the other cheek, but it is our nation's to judge properly. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word tonight. Lord, we thank you for your law. Uh, God, uh, if we will consider your law and consider uh, your ways, God, reasonably, Lord, and apply them to our lives today, God, it'll help us, uh, Lord, to live uh, peaceably with those that are around us, God. It'll help us uh, to, to live in harmony, uh, Lord, to, to live under the law of love, uh, God, in taking care of others, uh, Lord, to act rightly and fairly. And so, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that uh, much of our own, the laws of our own nation, uh, Lord, in so many ways are built upon these laws and we we thank you for that, God. So your law, as it stands with our law, uh, God allows us, uh, Lord, these thousands of years later, uh, to live quiet and peaceable lives. Uh, Lord, I thank you, God, you didn't leave us to figure these things out on our own, but you gave us your word of truth and right, and I pray that you would help us to uphold it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.